everyone. I'm Charlotte. And I'm Dina. Welcome to The Grim Curriculum. So this is finally it, Dina. We're finally covering it. I'm excited. Are you excited? Uh, I'm so, oh my god. I am beyond stoked for this one. We are going to be discussing today the Dyatlov Pass incident. Woo! So... This is going to be a two-part series. We have a ton of info to share with you all, and this is seriously such a fascinating story for so many different reasons. Like we said, we we both couldn't wait to finally cover this case. Especially considering studies done as recently as last year have likely solved this 63-year-old mystery. In case you aren't familiar with it already, the Dyatlov Pass incident occurred on February 2nd, 1959, when nine experienced hikers died under incredibly mysterious circumstances in the North northern Ural Mountains of Russia. And when we say mysterious circumstances, we mean it. Some of the details of this case will make your stomach churn. The entire thing is pretty much a nightmare. A cold, snowy, terrible nightmare. The party consisted of nine hikers, seven men and two women. They were all around the same age, between 20 and 24, with the exception of one hiker who was 38. The goal of the group was to do a 350 kilometer skiing expedition across the northern Ural Mountains in order to commemorate the 21st Congress of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. So that's some serious dedication. I can't say that I'd do a 350 kilometer trek for my government. I can't say I would do a 350 kilometer trek for anything. It would have to be some serious, like, charity or something, and I'm not an outdoorsy gal. So, the Ural Mountains aren't something to mess with. In fact, the specific mountain was called Kolyat Siakl, which in the indigenous Mansi language meant dead mountain. (laughs) Guys, if the indigenous people of an area name something dead mountain, please take that to heart. I feel like they're solid people to listen to at that point, because they're gonna know. Yes, and don't, if, the, people are ridiculous, like, you guys. If, if they're not going there, you probably shouldn't go there either, my friends. No, I agree. So, okay, well, the group, they kept a series of diaries throughout the trip, leading to the expedition itself, as well as a few days in. The final diary entry being on January 31st, 1959. This gives us a really unique perspective into not only the thoughts of a 20-something-year-old Russian in the late 50s, but also describes the early days of the trip very well. As far as the diary entries lead us to believe, the trip itself was going just fine until the evening of February 2nd when around midnight something woke the sleeping hikers. It scared them so much that they cut their way out of the tent and began running towards a forest that was located down a slope. Because this happened in the middle of the night, the hikers were not appropriately dressed for the temperatures, which were around the minus 25 degrees Celsius mark. And to all of our American friends, that is minus 13 degrees Fahrenheit, so not a nice day. No, freaking freezing, you guys. The events of their deaths were pretty mysterious to begin with, but their bodies were found under circumstances that baffled many. We're going to warn you now, this does get pretty gory pretty quick. Today we're going to be talking about the journey to the starting point of the expedition. And here's the thing, at the end of the day, these are nine people who tragically lost their lives. We aren't going to dive right into the terrible things that happened to them, but we do want to share their stories and experiences as best we can because it's important to. And honestly, we have such a unique insight into their lives that we truly just think it's important to share it if we're going to be talking about them. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to also be talking about what we know about the night they died and the discovery of their bodies. And in part two, things are going to get really weird as we talk about some of the theories out there regarding what happened to them. 
Some of them definitely make a lot of sense, and others are a little bit out there. And some are a lot of bit out there. Our pal the Yeti may or may not have made an appearance here. Yeah, I think there's also some, like, UFO references potentially oh, as well. all sorts of stuff. So the group, they sang a lot. They were a very musical bunch. They also had a lot of debates and things like that. The majority of them were university students, and they were well-educated. The diary entries are really fun for me because we can kind of see into the day-to-day headspace of where they were. Like we said earlier, there's two women that were a part of the trip, and I especially liked reading about them complaining about the guys acting obnoxiously, <laughs> and especially I liked reading about them thirsting after a local bearded Russian man that they met. I love that. It, it's kind of, th- there's kind of a bittersweetness because you're reading the diaries of, unfortunately, people that have passed away, yeah. but it's such a unique insight. The diaries do give an interesting insight into the the story because we get to know them above and beyond just the information that other people can tell us about them. We kind of get to see where their minds were and how they actually felt about the trip themselves. Like we mentioned, very recently studies have almost pretty much likely determined what happened, so we'll also be obviously talking about that. I love seeing new information come out about older events like this. Like, I know it's not quite the same, but it really gives me hope when it comes to unsolved mysteries that we've looked at in the past. I think it's never too late for an answer to be found if people are still actively looking for one. Last year in, I think, 2021, when they said they had probably solved it, I immediately dove straight in to see what the conclusion was. I don't know that I'm entirely convinced by right? this, but we're, we're going to get into it, you guys. Yeah, so the original ruling in their deaths was a compelling natural force. But as we know now, there was much more to the story. So... First things first, let's talk a little bit about the hikers themselves. A total of nine people would perish that evening, but let's talk about the guy who was supposed to have gone with them, but backed out last minute due to a health issue. So this guy, Yuri Yudin, he was 21 when this all happened, and we're going to talk more about him later, but he was with the group until the 28th of January. His sciatica was acting up badly, and he physically wasn't able to continue on. He would actually live to be the age of 75. He sure dodged a bullet. He dodged something, all right. The leader of the party was Igor Alexeyevich Dyatlov, a 23-year-old radio engineering student at the Ural Polytechnical Institute. He was an experienced mountain climber, and he was the one who originally got the group together and planned the trip. The group consisted of Dyatlov, Yuri Yudin, Yuri Durashenko, Lyudmila Dubinina, Yuri Kribionyshenko, Alexander Kolovatov, Zineda Komogorova, Rustam Slobodin, Nikolai Thibo Brinule, and Semyon Zolotaryov. So that's three Yuris, in case you guys weren't counting. And I will say, flat off the bat, for those of you who don't know, English is not my first language. I'm originally from Bosnia, and these are names that I've seen in the past, but it doesn't make them necessarily easier to pronounce. Now, I will say I enlisted the help of my wonderful mother uh, (laughs) with some of the pronunciation. And friends, we will be doing our best. Yes, please forgive us for our pronunciation, however it turns out. Yeah, we try. So, like we mentioned, they were all around the 20 to 24-year-old mark, with the exception of Semyon, who was 38. And we cannot stress enough that every member of this group was an incredibly experienced hiker. 
This wasn't some spontaneous and ill-prepared event. This was a well-planned expedition that they were all more than capable of. Each member of the group was a grade two hiker with a huge amount of skiing and hiking experience. They were all due to proceed to a grade three certification once the trip was over, which was the highest level available in the Soviet Union at the time. They were prepared, and most importantly, they were educated in regards to what to do if things went wrong while they were on their trip which is something that really just raises even more questions. Along with a series of individual diaries, they also kept a group diary and took a ton of pictures. We're gonna be sharing some of these on the socials and to those of you tuning in on YouTube, you're gonna see them throughout the video. The diaries indicate that the group knew that a part of the route that they were going to be passing wasn't well studied and therefore was not on any publicly available maps. Igor Dyatlov spoke to a man who was both a pilot and a geologist who helped them plan this part of the route. At this point again, the group consisted of nine hikers. They left Sverdlovsk on January 23rd for a 10 and a half hour train ride to Serov. I would love, I love train rides, you guys. They spent the train ride chatting with one another and singing songs. That's something that we'll see a lot of in the diary entries, them talking about singing their songs. On January 24th, the group spent 11 hours in Servov. The diary entries show that the group had an overall positive approach to the trip so far, despite the fact that Yuri Krivonoshenko was detained by police officers, get this guys, for singing and attempting to raise money because it was considered disturbing the peace. What a rebel. Right? They left for Ibdel from there and were met with a much more warm welcome when they arrived. They spent some time there with some preparations for the hike, and they also spent time with a group of young students. They spoke with them about the joys of travel and tourism, and apparently the kids loved them, and they even cried when they had to leave. On January 25th, they woke up early to catch the bus from Ivdel to Vizhay. They talk about this bus ride a lot in their diaries, and it sounds pretty wild. Apparently, Yuri Krivonoshenko was arrested around this time for attempting to raise money for candy. The group would write about how funny this was to this them. This guy truly is a real rebel. What a fun guy. So the bus they took had enough room for 25 passengers. They filled it up with 25 people. 20 backpacks and everyone skis. So now's a good time to hear a little about it from the group diary. The 25-seater bus was forced to accommodate a full 25 plus 20 backpacks packed to capacity and as many pairs of skis. We were full up to the ceiling. First layer passengers sat on the seats on a pile of skis on backpacks. Second layer passengers sat on the backs of the seats, finding a place for legs on the shoulders of comrades. It was not so tight, however, as not to sing, so we did almost all the way to Vizhay. So not only that, but apparently the bus actually ended up ditching them at a settlement and they had to run after it. It actually looked like it was fully planning to leave them behind. A lady saw them chasing after it and she stopped the bus. Apparently that didn't affect their spirits too much because Lyudmila Dubinina wrote about the experience saying it was nice to get to walk on foot and that they even spent time laughing and rolling around in the snow. And that little factoid, it was interesting to me because it makes me wonder, like, would they be alive if they somehow had not caught that bus again? It's always these little turning points that really have me thinking about fate, how like one tiny little action can change everything. They would finally arrive in Vizhay at around 2 p.m. that day. They then had dinner and saw the movie Symphony in Gold for the first time. In the diary, Ludmila also talks about how Igor Dyatlov loved the movie so much that he was singing and dancing. So they would end up seeing this movie quite a few more times before they departed on the hike. Like, a lot. When you look up Symphony in Gold, the Wikipedia page actually talks about how this was among the last movies that the Dyatlov group saw before they died. 
Other than seeing the movie, they spent the night talking about love, friendship, dances, and other things. The following day, the group would send their final messages to their friends and family. The messages show no cause for concern. After they had lunch, they departed north of Vizhay. They rode on the back of a truck that apparently had no brakes and no shock absorbers. This is likely when Yuri Yudin suffered the injury that would cause his sciatica to flare up. Again, this would ultimately cause him to turn back before the group left for the doomed expedition. When they arrived, they were greeted by workers of the small town that they visited. They watched three more movies that night, one of them being Symphony in Gold. This is also when they start talking about the beard. Guys, this this guy sounds super fun. So the ladies mention him in the diaries a few times over the course of a few days. The beard was the nickname of a man, also known as Ognev, who had a large red beard and definitely made an impression on the women. I get, what's the big guy from Game of Thrones? <gasps> yes! The, with the red hair that's in love with Brienne of Tar? Yes. That's what I'm imagining. That is basically who I picture too. Yes, that's. I hope totally. you guys picture him as well, because I feel like that's who we're all seeing I here. imagine this, yeah, big jolly man with a big red beard. Big booming voice yeah. making you laugh. So Lyudmila Dubinina wrote... In general, here are all civilians. There are no women at all, except two. The guys are all young, as Igor noticed. They are even cute and generally interesting. Especially memorable among all is Ognev, with a red beard and the nickname of his, Beard. In general, very rarely there are such people in such a hole. A true romantic, a geologist, and generally developed... Many of the guys play the guitar. I love it. It's it's a vibe. You I guys. love it. Like, and that's the thing. Like the entire time reading the diary entries, like I don't know about you, but it's like you forget. I, I that it all ends. I so can badly. put myself. I imagine because it's the the late fifties. Yep. So I'm imagining what they're wearing. They're wearing their big woolly sweaters, mm-hmm. and you know they have all their gear. They're laughing. They're having fun. They're just a bunch. I mean, with the exception of one of the hikers, they're essentially a bunch of kids. Like I mean, those totally. early twenties years, yeah. like. I mean, you know, nowadays you would talk about, like, going on a road trip or, like, flying down to Mexico for a week with your friends or whatever. But these guys are like, no, we're going to hike 350 kilometers. What an adventure it will all be. Seriously. Like, you really do forget, though. Like, you really do. do. This is one of the first days where the group starts to get a little negative. Zina Komagrova complains about having to borrow mittens from one of the Yuris, and Ludmilla Dubinina finished her diary entry for the day with the words... Mood is bad and probably will be for two more days. Evil as hell. It's pretty ominous. It's pretty, like, dramatic. That sounds like me. It's like, everything is great, and then the second something goes wrong, I had to borrow some dude's gloves. It's like, fucking hell. I hate it here. I I want to go home. (laughs) So Yuri Yudin also complained in his diary entry, saying that he didn't want to watch the movies with them, but his tone changed when he talked about what a good time he had in the end, and I can relate to this so much. (laughs) The amount of times that my best friend is like, hey, you want to watch this movie? And I'm like, no, not really. And then she'll put it on anyway, and by the time the end comes, I'm like, oh, that was actually really good. It's like your new favorite movie. Pretty much. And I mean, at this point, they've been traveling together for a little while, and they could have started to bicker and get on each other's nerves a little bit more. Like, I think that's pretty normal. Yeah, of course it is. There's also, though, a strange but short entry from Nikolai that simply says... I can't, although I tried. How cryptic. Yeah. What does... But it could be something as innocent as, I wanted to fall asleep, and I couldn't. I tried. I wanted to talk to one of the ladies, but I couldn't. I, tr- I wanted to talk to the bearded man because he is so handsome, yeah. but I tried, and I couldn't. 
so like uh, what did you mean nikolai January 27th, they began their journey to Gora or Torton. They spent the early part of the day enjoying the company of the beard and the other new friends that they had made. They also made notes of Mansi words that they had learned. They also spent a huge portion of the day singing. They also talk about getting to learn illegal prison songs. I want to know what an illegal prison song a is. Russian illegal prison yeah. song. Like, tell me more. No like, again, I'm fully aware this ends in chaos and hell, but up until here, it sounds like a pretty good time. Like, things are going to go south really, really, really fast, and this is kind of the turning point of where we start to see that, but still. I've said it before. You guys are going to hear me say it again probably a million times because I'm constantly repeating myself, but I am not an outdoorsy person. I hate hiking. I've had friends that are like, Charlotte, come hiking on it with us. And I'm like, I appreciate the invite, but it's never going to happen. It, but like the idea of going on this like fantastic adventure with your friends, you're all singing, you're playing games, you're meeting interesting people. It sounds wonderful. It does sound like it's a It's very really good like time. romantic. I, I love it. Very idealized, like coming of age type trip, And especially right? in those days, Soviet Union propaganda, like yeah. we're just a bunch of young communist kids out to serve our country, you know? A man named Ryaznev offered to help them reach their first point by finding a means of transportation, which ended up being in the form of a sled being pulled by a single horse. This is also when Yuri Yudin would decide to leave the group. It was the final point where he could have left with someone else. He ended up leaving with the man who owned the horse and sled the following day. The group seemed let down that Yuri was going to be leaving, but this was a decision that would save his life. And I think in a way this also shows that they had the experience and the intelligence to make good decisions it's, on this trip. It's true. I think it's a sign of a good leader when you know when you've met your limit. Absolutely. Like He knew and he understood that this was going to be incredibly difficult, so he just tapped out. There's nothing wrong no, with that. Like He not. didn't try to be a tough guy. He didn't try to impress anyone. He just acknowledged what was happening and he made a choice and that choice would ultimately save his life. So from here, they left on skis to the second northern settlement. This site had 24 abandoned houses and only one of them was actually fit for them to sleep in overnight. The idea of an abandoned settlement on a dark night sounds absolutely terrifying yes, in the mountains. To me. Like I'm getting almost like I know it's not quite the same, but like the shining vibes, you know, where the hotel is just up in the mountains, closed down, no one's there. I'm seeing 30 days a night. Oh, minus yes. the vampires, yep, 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 right? Yep. Like well, you don't know. <laughs> we don't know. We don't know. You're absolutely right. So Igor Dyatlov, he talks about how when they finally arrived there, it was pitch black. That didn't stop them from having an overall very positive attitude, though. They stayed up till 3 a.m. talking and laughing. I'm kind of glad that they had such a nice time because, like, shit is about to hit the fan in the worst way possible for these people. So, like, this is kind of nice. Like, th this whole thing, it just reads like a horror movie. It does, where everyone's jolly and good to go, and then, boom. Yeah. It all changes. The following day, January 28th, Yuri was set to leave. Members of the group would help him look for various minerals to bring back for his studies, while the rest of the group stayed back and waxed their skis. Once Yuri left around 11.45am, they departed up the river Lozva until they reached their resting point around 5.30. They set up their tents and had dinner as a group. They spend the night sitting around the fire, and you guys guessed it, singing. The next day really shows us how difficult this hike actually was. We know we're talking a lot about them like singing and having a good time, but th these are clearly just people who are much tougher than we are. I mean, like they fought amongst each other for sure, but overall they were pretty positive for nine people on a very difficult hiking trip 
in the freezing cold of like January, February. I, you know, I think I'm just a wuss. Nah, girl, this is not my cup of tea. Like, I'm scuba diving adventurous, not climbing remote death mountain adventurous. So the area that they were hiking through at this point didn't have an actual trail, so the men of the group spent time cutting through the trees and the brush in the area so they could pass. Once they did, they hiked on, stopping every two to three kilometers or so for a break. They then followed a Mansi ski trail and began seeing many Mansi signs in the area. They didn't make many complaints at this time and stated that the wind was pretty weak and that the weather was decent for them. Most of the diary entries here are clearly written on the go and they were likely written as the group was moving. They spent the day hiking through very difficult terrain. The wind picked up and the snow was around four feet deep in some spots. This is kind of the turning point where things begin to get difficult and we kind of go from this like happy wonderful adventure where everyone is singing and having a good time straight into total nightmare. The group begins to fight more around this time too. Some group members are more willing to work hard and help than others and they began to criticize those members strongly and even fight with them. The following day the weather worsened more and the trek became even more difficult. The snow was so deep and it was so difficult to see that they were going at an incredibly slow pace. They tried different ways to get through the snow, including taking turns forming paths. They then left the Uspia Valley, which of course was an upwards trek. Overall, they said this part of the hike wasn't too bad and that once the wind stopped, they were happy. They pitched their tent, made a fire, and enjoyed a warm meal. The following day, it seems like there was some confusion on the best way to continue. Ultimately, Igor Dyatlov would make the final decision. They would hike across the ridge of Mount Kolyatsiakl, spend the night at a lake, and then make the ascent to Mount Ortorton, and then go off on the return journey. On February 1st, the group only covered two kilometers total and spent the night in the cold as they were not able to find any firewood. See, that shit would have broken me right there. I'd be done. Yeah. I'd be done. I'd be like, I'm going home. Are you kidding me? I would see, like, the four-foot snow and be like, nope. <sighs> yeah, I'm not about it, you guys. During this time, they decided against writing in their group diary entry and instead wrote a satirical propaganda leaflet called The Evening or Torton. In it, they wrote the words, From now on, we know that the snowmen exist. Which, like, kind of once you know some of the theories, is pretty horrifying. Right? We're going to be talking more about that statement in part two when we discuss the theories, because, uh, yeah, creepy. On February 2nd, the group was supposed to hike to Lake Luntusaftor and enjoy a much more comfortable evening. However, that is not what would end up happening. As we mentioned before, many members of the group kept in touch with their friends and family by sending various letters and postcards. Igor Dyatlov agreed that he would send a telegram to their sports club to let them know they had successfully completed the trip as soon as they returned to Vizhay. Their loved ones expected to hear back from them before February the 12th. However, February 12th came and went with no word from the group. This wasn't a huge red flag at first because delays were known to happen on trips like this. The group also had the level of experience where their friends and family probably had no reason to think that something could go wrong. They probably thought that they were just running a little behind and that they'd hear from them soon enough. But time went on and no one had heard from anyone in the group, and by February 20th, the families of the hikers demanded an official search for them. The original search group consisted of volunteers, mostly made up of teachers and students. It became apparent very quickly that more help was going to be needed, and a team of army and police forces became involved. Six days later, the rescue team found the group's tent. It was badly damaged and covered with snow. The campsite itself also raised more questions than it gave answers. None of the hikers were in the tent. 
However, they left behind all of their belonging and even most of their shoes. It also appeared that the tent had been cut open from the inside. Nine sets of footprints were visible leading out of the tent. The footprints showed that some of the hikers were only wearing their socks. And they were the lucky ones. Other footprints showed that some of the hikers walked with absolutely nothing on their feet. The footprints led to the edge of a nearby forested area. After around 500 meters, the tracks were no longer visible due to freshly fallen snow. At the very edge of the forest, around 1.5 kilometers away from where the tent was found, there were the remains of a small fire. There, the bodies of Yuri Doroshenko and Yuri Krivionyshenko were found. When the criminal investigation was underway, a prosecutor would say, Krivonyshenko's right leg has no footwear. On his left foot, there is a brown sock, torn. Another sock like this was discovered half burnt next to the fire. On the backs of his hands, the skin is torn. Between the fingers, there is blood. The index finger is also torn. The skin of his left shin is torn and covered in blood. There are no more visible injuries on his body. Doroshenko has woolen socks on his feet and over these socks, another lighter sock. His ear, lips, and nose are covered in blood, and on his left hand, the middle finger is bloody. It appeared to investigators that the two men had run from the tent and arrived at the edge of the forest. There, they attempted to start a small fire, which they were able to light for a short period of time. It was originally thought that the team met their end by freezing to death, but the more that investigators found, the more questions they had. It would have been around minus 30 degrees Celsius that night, but both men were found in nothing but their underwear. Not only that, their bodies were described as bloody masses. Trees nearby had pieces of human flesh embedded into them. The search team concluded that it was likely due to the amount of trees in the area that had cuts on them that the two Yuris were not alone during this time. One of the investigators reported, Several wool and cotton socks were scattered around the fire. There was a woman's handkerchief burned through in several places and some fragments of woolen clothes, but we didn't find the actual clothes themselves. In particular, we found the cuff of a dark sweater there, not on the bodies. We also found some money, eight rubles. Along with this, they found some other strange clues. It was clear that all of the low branches on the trees around them that were within arm's reach were broken off, likely to help with the fire. However, Large branches, some as high as five meters, were also broken. This suggested that at least one person had attempted to climb a tree. The amount of blood and flesh on the trees indicated that whoever tried to climb the trees had done it in a huge hurry. A later autopsy concluded that Yuri Doroshenko suffered a pulmonary edema and a pulmonary contusion as a result of blunt trauma. Yuri Krivonashenko had bitten into his knuckle, likely to stifle a cry. He also had third-degree burns on his hands. They then found the bodies of Igor Dyatlov, Zineda Kolmogorova, and Rustam Slobodin, who had all died on the way back to the camp from the small fire. Can I just say, third-degree burns are the worst burns you can get. So this isn't just like, ooh, I got a little too close to the fire. This is, ooh, that went down to the muscle. Yeah, yeah, like, these were some pretty serious injuries. And too, like, him, the, the detail of him biting into his knuckle to the oh. point where, like, they noticed it on the autopsy report. Which has two very scary um, implications to me. One, either he was in so much pain that he was biting into his knuckle to, like, offset that. Or he was trying to stifle a cry because he was scared and trying to be quiet. And that, to me, is even scarier. Even scarier. Like, none of this. Not not good, guys. Yeah, no, this this is bad times. 
Igor was found lying on his back with his jacket undone and both of his hands held up to his chest. He had cuts and bruises on his face. The autopsy also showed that before he died, he had been vomiting blood. Zaneda was found with severe frostbite and her hands and face were cut badly. She also had a baton-shaped bruise on her waist. Rustam Slobodin's body is where things start to get even more strange. This is where we start to see different types of injuries that many have argued don't add up. He was found with many minor scrapes along his face and body. However, he also had a severe 6-centimeter fracture along the left side of his head. Experts would later determine that this was not what ultimately killed him. It is most likely that he succumbed to the cold. What's interesting about him is that the autopsy specifically states that the trauma to his head was caused by someone hitting him in the head, not an accident. So let's just take a second to process that. The fact that whatever happened scared them so much that they tried to claw their way up a tree to the point where they left chunks of their flesh on it. Like, that, that just stays with it, me. Like, it gives me the heebie-jeebies. I don't want to get into it too much because we're going to talk about theories next week. But regardless of what actually happened that night, that level of fear and desperation is just horrifying to me it's absolute panic like how frantic do you have to be that your skin is embedded into the bark of the tree you're climbing like we've all climbed trees as a kid i've climbed trees as a kid obviously never in a panic to like escape anything and like yeah sure you scrape your hands you scrape your knees I've never left a chunk of my flesh behind in a tree. No, that takes so much force to actually do it hard, do anything hard yeah. enough to leave oh. pieces of you behind like that. Bah. Also, the distance from the tent to where the bodies were found was around 1.5 kilometers away from that. And remember how difficult it was for them to get through this terrain with all of their equipment. This happened in the middle of the night. They left with absolutely nothing. It would take two entire months before the rest of the bodies could be located. These discoveries would confuse investigators even further. They were found by a mancy man named Kurikov who was out hiking with his dog. This would change everything. It really does. Some of these injuries just make no sense, and so many of the details regarding the bodies is just so confusing. That's why there's so many wild theories about what happens. Like, nothing adds up. Nikolai was found dressed relatively well, but his skull was completely crushed. Along with that, he had severe fractures to his skull and jaw. What is strange about his body was that upon first inspection, it actually didn't look too bad. The head presented with no outside damage. It was only once the autopsy was done that the fractures were found. So what that basically means is it was like his skull had been crushed from the inside. Ugh. I hate it. What? Ugh. Like, it doesn't make any sense. And it just gets weirder from there. Straight up, guys. Alexander Kolevatov was found missing the soft tissue near his eyes. He also had a large open wound behind one of his ears. Semyon Zolotarov was found missing both of his eyes. He also had a wide wound in his skull, and his chest had been crushed to the point where his ribs were broken. He was also missing skin near his eyes and had a wound behind his ear. And if that wasn't bad enough... They finally found the final hiker, Ludmila Dubinina. The details regarding her body are something that make this case as famous and truthfully scary as it is. This is straight up nightmare fuel. She was found with most of the soft tissue on her face missing. Her eyes were gone and her nose had been crushed beyond recognition. Her mouth was stuck in an open position that gave the appearance that she was silently screaming. When they investigated further, they found that her tongue had been removed. Her foot was wrapped in a pair of Krivyonshenko's pants, and Semyon was found wearing another hiker's jacket and hat. 
So if it's not already gotten weirder and weirder and weirder, it continues to get weirder, guys, because both of their bodies showed evidence of radioactivity. To me, I feel like the radioactivity, like we see all these details and it's like, that's why some of the theories are so weird. So wild. Because how do you explain it? Exactly. Because you might, like, well, again, guys, we'll get into it next, next episode, next week. But, you know, you could argue that they fell or that there was an avalanche or something happened. When there's physical wounds, there's kind of more of an explanation. You know, without getting too far into it, you could argue that, like, the flesh missing on their face was from animals. Yeah. Right? Like, they were out there for a couple of months. They were preserved in the cold temperature. You know, the soft tissue on the face is usually the first tissue Mm -hmm. to go. But radioactivity? That's harder to explain. Yes. Yeah. That doesn't just happen. No. And it doesn't just, like, happen and then, like, stay on you like that. And they were the only two that showed signs. Not all of them did. Just the two. So, riddle me that, you guys. After the autopsies and the initial investigation, it was concluded that the hikers' deaths were caused by a compelling natural force and the criminal case was closed. Bullshit. But we'll get into it. Yeah. (laughs) I don't believe it. The investigation officially finished May of 1959 due to the fact there was no guilty party present. They couldn't get the Eddie. No, you know, guys, he was just being far too elusive. He was busy. The files were sent away to a secret archive, and not much would be known about the case until 1997 when it was revealed that an investigator named Lev Ivanov had kept the negatives from Krivyonoshenko's camera in his private archives. His daughter donated the negatives to the Dyatlov Foundation, and the diaries fell into public domain in 2009. Because of all this, we have these amazing photos and diaries that give us a unique view into this case. It really adds that extra level of humanity to it, and it shows that these were really just a group of young people who wanted to have a good time. They knew what they were doing and they had no reason to believe that anything like this could ever happen to them. Which of course brings up the burning question that we all have. What exactly happened to them? What could cause nine hikers to run out of their tents, mostly shoeless and in their underwear, out into the pitch black cold? What could possibly scare them so badly that they ripped up their hands trying to climb trees? And I think most importantly, What could cause the level of injuries that they found on their bodies? Next week, we're going to be talking about some of the later investigations into the case and talking about some of the theories that are out there. Next week is going to get weird. Well, weirder. It's going to be great. Also, guys, just in case you missed it, we have some incredibly exciting news. We are on Patreon. Yay! That's right. So we've been working really hard to come up with some fun perks and some exclusive content for all of you. If you want to support the podcast, that is a great way to do it. Every bit helps. So please check it out and continue supporting. But with that being said, we just truly appreciate your listens and getting to chat with you about the cases we cover. We really, really love doing this and the Patreon will hopefully allow us to take things to the next level and kind of continue to grow and bring you more fun content. Until then, make sure you don't miss out on the Grim Curriculum news by following us on Instagram at The Grim Curriculum and Grim Curriculum on Twitter. And we are also on Facebook. You betcha. We can also be found individually on social media. I'm ominous underscore walrus on Twitter and ominous walrus on Instagram. And I'm Dina V on Twitch, Dina V IG on Instagram, and Dina V tweets on Twitter. Join us every Saturday for a new episode. We also do a live premiere on YouTube at 12 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. So come hang out with us and discuss the case in real time. So make sure you subscribe to us on YouTube like right now. Thanks so much for listening, guys. This has been The The Grim Grim Curriculum. Curriculum.